Heavenly Father, we just want to come and ask that you would, um, you would speak to us with, uh, well, we know you're going to speak with clarity. We know you're going to come with authority. We know that whenever you speak, it's always good and it's right and it's for our good and it's for your glory. But we need your help by the work of your spirit to help our minds, our bodies, our hearts, all of who we are to engage with it. And so might you grant us the grace in this moment, Father, to, to be active in our listening to you. And that we would not come to this text that is so full of life and so full of joy, like any other text that's ever existed, no matter how good that book was, no matter how inspiring that tweet was, but we would come to, to this book and to Luke 15 with what it is, which is your living and active word. What we ask more than anything else, what every person in this room needs more than anything else, whether they have walked with you for 71 years, whether they don't yet know Jesus, and they're not even sure how they ended up here this morning. What we need is to leave this time more impressed with what Jesus has done, who he is, more full and sure of, of faith on what he promises to do. We ask that you would lift him high during this time and you would keep him loud throughout this coming week until we get to gather back again and remind ourselves of how good Jesus is. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I was 10 when this happened, but I still remember it. And some of you might remember this as well, baby Jessica. It's the story of an 18-year-old toddling around the backyard in Midland, Texas at her aunt's house, and she stumbled upon a eight-inch diameter pipe. Sadly, she fell into the pipe. It was an old well that hadn't been used in a while, but it had been left um, uncovered. And so she fell, and she fell 22 feet until her leg kind of turned in, in, in a certain way that, that she got stuck in this pipe. And, and it's incredible because where she actually got stuck, right beneath that spot, right beneath it, about 22 and a half feet is where the pipe opened up really wide and it went down, I think, another 67 feet. And so she's in this pipe and she's crying out and she's screaming. Her aunt hears her and then begins an incredible rescue mission involving thousands of people working nonstop for three days to try to get this little child out of this pipe. There's firefighters, police, paramedics. They also had uh, people that, that, that drilled oil for, for oil because part of the strategy was that they were going to drill a, a kind of parallel shaft to where this little girl was stuck. And then the idea was once they got down 22 feet, then they would go over horizontally to try to connect the tunnels that they could send someone down to, to bring her back out to, to life. And as they got down, they were able to drill down. And as they tried to go horizontally, the rock, it, it wouldn't allow the, the drill mechanisms. However, they did it to, to work. And so they actually found someone, an engineer, a, a mining engineer, that there's a new technology of using uh, water to cut rock. And so they, they began to to cut that rock, and they made this pathway. And in this backyard, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of different people assembled. This was being broadcast on TV across the nation. Ron Short was a roofing contractor. 
Never been on a rescue mission, wasn't part of search and rescue, wasn't a parent, but he said, but he said hey, can, I'll go down. I'll, I'll go get her because I was born without collarbones. So it's like I'm able to squeeze into really tight spaces. The team considered it, but at the end, they decided to send paramedic Robert O'Donnell. And this was all filmed. See, no matter what you were watching while this was happening, they, they, they changed the program when they went down to get her. And as he inches towards her, and then this scene around the backyard, it's, it's kind of dark, and there's lights, and there's helicopters, and they pull her up. There's millions of people are watching. And when she came out of that pipe, she's, she's scraped and she's bruised, but she is alive. And there was so much joy. You hear people celebrating. Probably could hear those shouts in your neighborhood. I think it was Ronald Reagan who said something about it. He said for the 56 hours that she was down there, it was like everyone in America was the godmother and godfather of baby Jessica. She became everyone's baby. It's considered one of the greatest rescues of all time. We're going to look at another rescue today, which I will tell you is the greatest rescue of all time and the even greater joy that it brings to those that are found. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? Luke chapter 15, verse 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, speaking of Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp? Sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God. There is, there, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Feel free to grab a seat. Hacksaw Ridge is a powerful movie. It's a violent movie. It's a very graphic movie about a battle during World War II, but it is one of my favorite movies. It tells the true story of private first-class Desmond T. Doss. He was a Christian pacifist, but he still enlisted for the army. After the attacks on Pearl Harbor, as many people were enlisting in the military, he enlisted into the army, even though he would not pick up a rifle, he wanted to go and be a medic. He was like, I can't take life, but perhaps I can, I can save it. Um, the movie is, is stunning in, in many ways. He's the only soldier in the army in World War II that went into combat without a weapon. The only one. He had a Bible with him. 
He went in. He didn't carry a weapon. He carried a Bible. Because he wouldn't carry a rifle, ironically, he was actually placed in a, in a rifle regiment. And because he wouldn't even touch a, a rifle, he was, he was mocked. He was, he was punished. He was, he was jumped multiple times by his, his, his fellow uh, soldiers. He was actually court-martialed. He was, he was thrown in prison and threatened that he would have to stay there unless he would grab a rifle. But he went in the army. They couldn't figure out how to get rid of him, and he wouldn't quit. And thank God he didn't. The movie's stunning. If you watch it, and again, it's very graphic, um, very intense. But if you watch it, you see the sort of man he is no better than in this final battle that happened outside of Okinawa. Um, the company he was in, there's a number of different people that had tried to take, they were trying to kind of inch by inch get to Okinawa, and there was this ridge, there was this cliff side that was standing in the way, it was called Hacksaw Ridge. And, and company after company, they had these ropes, these cargo nets that they had put to this cliff wall that they would climb up and they would go out and try to take inch after inch after inch, and multiple attempts, multiple battles, and finally his company was able to take it. They would go up one after another in and, and, and these battles, and they finally, they secured the top of of, of this ridge, which was a strategic place to be able to get into Okinawa to try to bring an end to the war. And they thought they secured it until there was an exceedingly vicious counterattack. Bullets are flying. So much death, so much hurt, so much pain on each side. Nobody wins in war. Desmond's commanding officer commands everyone, retreat, retreat, go back. We're gonna regroup. And so what happens is those that could, those that could still move, they, they go to this cargo net and they scurry down as quick as they can and be able to go back to the tents to a place of safety. The only people that couldn't make it were those that were dead or those that were injured or Desmond. Desmond didn't follow the orders. He stayed behind and he stayed behind because he kept trying to save someone. In, in the account, the first person he comes across had lost both of his legs, and he's sitting in, uh, in, a, in a foxhole, and Desmond grabs him and puts him on his shoulders, and he walks over to this, you know, in the middle of this battle, and he walks over to the edge of this cliff, and he, and he ties a rope around him, and then he uses a rock and leverage to lower him down to safety where there's medics at the bottom of this cliff to grab him. And then he prays this. Lord, help me get just one more. And he goes back in. I mean, he, he runs back in to the battle and he finds another. He puts him on his shoulders and he goes to the edge of this cliff and he lowers him down and he says, Lord, help me find just one more. And he does this over and over and over again for 12 hours. For 12 hours in the middle of a firefight, his hands are bloody, he's exhausted, he's dehydrated, he's, he's filthy. Help me find just one more. He saved at least 75 people. What I love about that story, behind, beyond the courage of it, beyond how inspiring it is, is that what we see in the actions of Desmond is we see the heart of God who goes after one we see the heart of Christ. Luke 19.10, Jesus himself tells us why he came. 
For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, in this parable, there's some images that are used. So there's the image of a, of a coin, and there's the image of a sheep. And if, if, you, if, you're, if you've been a Christian for, for any amount of time or been around Christianity, the idea of shepherd and sheep is probably one that's very familiar to it, that Jesus is our shepherd. Or you have Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. What else do I need? That picture of a sheep is one of comfort, of of joy, of protection, it's calming. But one of the things we might miss is how dangerous it was for a sheep to go wandering off on its own. When you're called a sheep in the Bible, it wasn't necessarily a compliment. Sheep were, were, were prone to wandering. Sheep have no fangs. They have no claws. They're not very agile. You know, there's other animals that can't fight back, but you know what they can do? Run. Have you ever seen a sheep really run? Especially if its coat gets bigger, which is big, fuzzy, dopey marshmallow. And they are dopey. They're defenseless and they're dumb. Self-apply however you want today. It leaves the shepherd, it leaves the good pastures, it wanders off, and here's the point of it. Apart from intervention, it is dead. It's desperately lost. It won't survive long. Part of this parable is saying that's every person's condition apart from God finding them. Isaiah 53, 6, the first part of it says this. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We've wandered off. Now, in the context here, Jesus is, there's a group of people that are flocking to him, people that have been far from God, and they're coming to him, and he welcomes them, and he eats with them as a way of saying, you belong with me. Tax collectors were notoriously despised in Israel at this time. They were typically Jewish, but they, they kind of buddied up with the Roman occupiers to, to uh, extort money out of people. And then when it says sinners... It's a particular type, sinners that are really well-known sinners, people that are notoriously sinners, people that were seen as, as outcasts. He's saying, you've wandered away. And what the shepherd does is the shepherd goes and looks for them. Lord, help me get one more. I want to press the imagery of this parable a bit more. The shepherd looks and searches and finally finds the sheep, picks it up. Because it won't come back on its own. It won't won't come. You can't call it. Lays it on his shoulders. Now, I didn't know this till uh, this past week, but uh, the average adult sheep, when they're full grown, weighs over 120 pounds. I don't know about you. When I have this picture of the shepherd going after the sheep, I I see Jesus holding like a really cute little sheep. (laughs) It's clean and it smells good. It's fuzzy. The sheep, this sheep was not. It was massive and heavy and weighty and stunk. And the shepherd picks it up, carries that load. It's a picture of protection, of pursuit. It's also a picture of intimacy and closeness. The shepherd lays the sheep on his shoulders. I mean, you could feel the, the, the beat of the heart of the animal. The, 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 the sheep could feel the, the breathing of the shepherd. You, you could feel, feel the breath on his neck. So there's, a, there's a closeness to this that is just stunning. 
I'm not sure who in this room doesn't need to hear this today. If you are a Christian, that's how the shepherd came after you and how close he brought you and how he feels about you. If you are in this room and you are not a Christian, that is what the good shepherd wants to do is to help you know how good he is that he wants you. It's pursued, it's desire, but it also takes a lot of sacrifice. Uh, Jesus Garcia was a railroad brakeman in a rail yard in uh, Nakazori, a town in Sonora, Mexico. Um, had a few hundred people or so. This is about 125 years ago. And there's a, um, a certain train that was waiting. So they would get kind of backed up at this train yard in the middle of this town. It was waiting to get moving again. And all of a sudden, you heard the words, Fire. And Jesus looks out and he can see this long train and, and the way this was, it was all kind of like open container train and in one of the, the, the cars was a bunch of, of, of hay was kind of bailed and in the back of this and somehow it had sparked and it had caught on fire. That would be a big deal at any point but it was a really big deal because the cars that were next to it were on their way to a copper mine and they were full of dynamite. And so in this trail yard in the middle of a town of a few hundred people, everyone that works for the trail, they're running around, they're scared, they don't know what to do. Jesus, I believe, is 23 years old, and he jumps in the train by himself, and he begins to back it down the hill coming up to the town. He gets it about four miles away, and the fire got to the dynamite, and the entire thing just explodes. The only thing left of Jesus was a boot, it's an incredible rescue start. Jesus, he sacrificed himself for the good of his town. He gave of himself that others might live. It's an incredible reflection of the ultimate cost of our rescue given in Christ. Isaiah 53, 6. Let me finish the verse for you. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord left us over there. And the Lord mocked us. And the, and the Lord said, figure it out and make your way back. And the, and the Lord said, here's the three things you need to do to be right with me. That's not what the text says. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Speaking of Jesus, this was a promise made about Christ 700 years before he came. It said that there's going to be one that's going to come. He's going to be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He will come for the healing of all that trust in him. For those that have wandered into foolishness and sin and rebellion and, and, and apathy before God. And instead of making them pay their debt, instead of the iniquity, instead of them wearing their sin, he's going to put it on another who would come and give his life that they might live. That's the story of the gospel. That's the good news of our rescue that one came like Jesus. And he entered in and he took the dynamite. He took the punishment. He took the death. Christ came and lived the life that we were meant to live, but then died on the cross and the death that we were supposed to take that we might be brought back in with rejoicing. And I want you to hear that. Look at this, this, this text. Look at this phrase found in verses 6 and 9. Rejoice with me. And then verses 7 and 10. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
These parables are what known, are, is what known as like a how much more parable. Sheep matter. The coin matters. You matter way more. The lost matter way more. Those that are far from God matter infinitely more. If there's joy at finding a sheep, how much more when one sinner repents? That's what fuels Jesus' pursuit of the lost. That's what fueled Jesus' pursuit of you if you know him. And when anyone is found, heaven throws a party. Now, I don't know if this is how people train dogs anymore, when they potty train dogs. This is how it was done like 40 years ago. Don't tell PETA. Um, but, but typically what would happen, at least in the circles I was in, is that when you had a dog and you wanted to teach them how to not go to the bathroom inside, what you would do is if they went to the bathroom inside, they did number one or number two, or dogs can do number three, you know, whatever, whatever they've done. And this is a gross illustration for a reason. What you would do is you will go get the dog, you would grab the dog, you would drag the dog over to the carpet, you would take that dog, you would shove its nose in its doo-doo. Anyone tracking with me? Maybe you still do this, maybe not, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what you're supposed, I don't know what you do anymore. It seems like it's pro- we've probably moved past this, but you take the dog and you rub its nose in it, you give it a spanking, and you go, bad dog, bad dog. And it just goes, and you drag it. You open up the slider, you throw it outside, shut the slider. Just let it whimper. Think of the contrast with this parable. Sheep wanders off, does dumb stuff. The shepherd just rejoices. He just grabs, he just claims, there's nothing shame. And say, oh, let's talk about all your junk. Let's go stare. I'm going to rub your face in your history. I'm going to rub you your face in your choices. He just just grabs the sheep and just rejoices and throws it on his shoulders and then throws a party. Says, oh, would you come, my friends, would you come? Would you come and celebrate with me? That which was lost is now found. So often we think God looks at us, he's just fed up and angry, but that's not the parable. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And now, that does not mean that there's anyone that doesn't need repentance. And in one level, it's saying the 99 that are back are those that have repented. Those are the ones that have come into Christianity. Those are the ones that are Christ's father. They're the ones that are in the, the church. But the focus isn't even on the 99, it's on the one. And what it's supposed to do, Christ is trying to press into our hearts and our lives how much he wants lost people. I love how Will Anderson says it. When sinners repent, angelic parties erupt. Its main byproduct in heaven and on earth is joy. Repentance will often activate your tear ducts, drop you to your knees, and illuminate your fills, which can be unpleasant, but whatever discomfort it costs you is infinitely surpassed by the raucous heavenly welcome it gives you. That's why last week when we were baptizing, when people get up out of the, the tank is this Testimony, this public declaration that I've been saved in Christ, I was lost and I'm found. We cheer and we celebrate because that's what the angels are doing. If you want to get a little more poetic about it, Bernard of Clairvaux says it like this, the tears of the repentant form the wine of the angels. 
when you came home, when the shepherd got you, the angels threw a party. Adoption has been um, one of the greatest gifts in, in my family's life. By God's grace, we've been able to adopt two, two kiddos. Uh, and uh, one, beyond being just off the charts joy, it's probably taught me more about the gospel than anything else. This story of like longing, the story of praying, story of pursuing. For my wife and I, both of our adoptions were international, and so the process of bureaucratic red tape and all the, the pain and difficulty that you could care less about pushing through because you know on the other side is your child, your son or your daughter, and you can't wait to have them. And then you get on a, on a plane, and then you arrive at, a, at an airport, and you get on a bus, and you get shuttled over to the orphanage, and then standing outside the orphanage is your son or your daughter, and you just rejoice. I always say that I've only seen my wife make the same look four times in her life. And it's the four times she met her kids for the first time. Two when she gave birth and two when we adopted. And the look on it is a look of affection and joy and celebration. And then you come home and what do you do? You tell your family, your friends, you invite them over. You say, you got to come over and see our son. You got to see our daughter celebrate with us. This parable is saying that, that you who were lost, you who were far off, oh, God is so delighted to have you. A.W. Tozer says it like this. He says, did you ever stop to think that God is going to be as pleased to have you with him in heaven as you are to be there? Not begrudged, not, not stiff-armed, not angry, not disinterested, like a dad whose son or daughter came home. Now, one of the intentions of this text is to not just help us understand the heart of Jesus and the heart of Jesus for, for us, but actually to cultivate in us the heart of Jesus for, for others, to expand and extend this joy. If you look at the primary audience here, it actually wasn't the sinners or tax collectors because they were actually flocking to Christ. They understood how gracious he was. It actually was these, this pairing, the fribes, the, the, the fribes and the scarcities, um, the Pharisees and the scribes. <laughs> Uh, the Pharisees and the scribes, these were the religious leaders of the time. And look what they're doing. They're not rejoicing, they're grumbling. Their hearts aren't longing to see the lost come home. They want to see them kept out. And then the text says, so Jesus told them a parable. He's trying to get them to get something. And he's trying to get us to get something. The 99 maybe in this room that are back in the fold to long for the one that's still not. Jesus wants us to have his heart for the lost too and to do what Jesus did to seek. I don't know where I heard this. I, I don't remember if I heard it, if I read it somewhere. I could not track it down. But I thought this line was very compelling. The reason Jesus leaves the church on the earth is the same reason he came to earth, to seek and save the lost. You know, consider the first command given by the resurrected Christ. It's known as the Great Commission. It says, go and make disciples of all nations. The first thing he said to them, the first command he gave to them, I should say. And then think about the last words that Christ gave before he ascended up to heaven. He says, I'm going to give you the ability to do this. I'm going to give you power. I'm going to put my spirit in you so that you can be my witnesses from here to the ends of the earth. He says, I want you to have the heart of Christ for those that don't know him. He is the great evangelist, and you go be evangelist still. 
He came that you might know him. Go so others might know him too. Now, I want you to, I'm going to lay that up against a, a recent report out of the Barna Group, which is a, an organization that does a lot of surveys and a lot of stats. Uh, they put this together in 2019, and here was the takeaway. Almost half of practicing Christian millennials think evangelism is wrong. Now, in the report, it, 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 we could tee off on boomers and Gen X and Gen Z and, you know, everyone. So this one, it just made this point because they were the largest group that said that. Almost half of practicing Christian millennials, practicing, that's important, think that evangelism is wrong. Now, some other points that came out of this that I thought were interesting when you think about that. Keep that in your back pocket. Almost all practicing Christians believe that part of their faith means being a witness about Jesus, like 97%. And the best thing that could happen to someone is for them to come to know Jesus, like 95%. Millennials, in particular, feel equipped to actually share their faith with others more than any other group. Despite this, almost half of millennials agree that it is somewhat wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith and hope that they might share the same faith. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I hope you hear this as a pursuit of, of love. I hope you hear the story of the gospel that those who are far can be brought near. And if you're a Christian, I hope you hear this as a challenge for where our hearts are at in terms of those that are around us. Now, stats, surveys are tricky, depending on how the question was asked, how the person responding and understood it was asked, but I think the point probably has some validity. We are in a pluralistic culture. We want to respect people's beliefs. We don't want to disrespect other religions or philosophies or worldviews. Who are we to say this is the only way? Many of us have grown up in a, in a social construct that says all paths, there's many paths to God. They're all basically the same. Now, here's where the challenge comes that's contradictory to what Christ himself says who declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Nobody gets to come home. I'm grateful for this text. I'm comforted by this text. I'm also challenged by this text. Uh, let, me give you the, let me give you the tale of one neighbor in two neighborhoods. So in the first neighborhood that my wife and I lived in, there's about 57 homes in these little cul-de-sacs and sidewalks, and, and I would regularly prayer walk the neighborhood. I would pray for each of the homes, pray that they would meet Jesus, pray that I'd get to know them. I'd try to like, I was the guy who I was like watching like, okay, hey, when's that neighbor that's three houses down, are they going to the mailbox? <laughs> you know, you just kind of show up. Oh, it's funny meeting you here. What a surprise. You know, and we would invite people over. We would get to know everyone's names. Um, we would throw these block parties. So our, our neighborhood was pretty international. It was really cool. God brought people from all over the place. So I was like, okay, this is an inn. How about we do a potluck and people bring dishes from their, their countries and we'll get together and we'd set up a, you know, tables and chairs in the cul-de-sac and we'd all eat together. I mean, it was a mission all the time. I, uh, the neighborhood I'm in now is about 21 homes and I don't know everyone's name. And I've been there seven years. Oh, there are lots of reasons for it. You know, I don't, 
I don't know if I've prayer walked once the entire night. Now, now I, I'm, I'm laying this out to, to try to, like, how comforted I was by this text, but also how agitated I was. Imagine what it was like for the thousands that helped rescue baby Jessica. How much joy they got to co-share at the salvation of this young girl. How much joy they probably have now even. She's married. She still lives in Midland, Texas, and she has two kids. How much joy there must have been for Desmond Doss as he thought about the men that he lowered off of this wall, Americans and Japanese, and that they got to go home to their, their, their families and they got to go back to their jobs and their, their friends and their moms and their dads. Imagine how much joy even Jesus must have had right before the train exploded, knowing I might lose my life, but my town will still remain. Imagine that joy. And this text is a, what I, I appreciate the comfort of it and I appreciate the challenge because I want that kind of joy. You can have that kind of joy. And again, these, these parables, the, these how much more parables, sheep matter, coins matter, but lost people matter more, infinitely more. We see this matter more in the actions of both the shepherd and the woman, that he leaves the 99 and he goes until he finds the sheep. We see it with the woman. She lights a lamp. She sweeps the house. She seeks diligently until she finds it. Now, I was going to take all of that and I was going to say, like, here's the heart of evangelism. Here's Jesus' heart. Here's the heart we should have. And, and now here's some how-tos for evangelism. But I cut all of it out. I cut all of it out yesterday because I don't want to talk about the how-tos. The how-tos matter, how we get better at it, how we engage with it. All I want to do is still focus on the heart. Just to want to. The hows matter, but they'll, they'll flow best from a heart that's desperate for the lost to be found. And that's in seminary. It was north of Boston on the North Shore, really beautiful area. And our seminary campus was like 150 acres or so, this old Catholic monastery that uh, Billy Graham was part of helping to arrange by. And they started the seminary there. And most of the academic buildings are on the far west side. And we lived on the far east side in married student housing. And so every day I would walk this, this path up to the campus and then down from the campus and up from the campus and down. And there was a field kind of in the middle of this big grass field, which is where we would get together and play soccer and ultimately at Frisbee, and one day as I'm walking up this, this path, I look over and I see one of my, my friends, and he's out in the field, and he's got a metal detector, and he's just walking around the field with his metal detector. Walk down, he's still out there. Next day, see my friend Ian, he's walking around with a metal detector, just going over every single <laughs> blade of grass, and after four or five days of watching my friend out there with his metal detector, I finally wandered off the trail, and I was like, hey, dude, what are you doing? And he looks at me and says, oh, this is bad. I lost my wedding ring. <laughs> so he's day after day after day after day after day to find a little gold band. I just think that picture, this woman searching diligently, looking in every crack, looking in every spot, you know, how much more our neighbors and our classmates and our buddies on sports teams and our coworkers and our servers? Like, do you know that, like, right now in Whatcom County, like, what do you think the average person that's not a Christian is thinking about Jesus right now in Whatcom County? Nothing. 
nothing. He's not on their radar screen. How will they know of the lover of souls who would come and take their iniquity, that would come and bear their curse? How would they know that they're far away? How would they, how would they know that they can be brought home? How would they know that they won't be scolded and shamed by legalism and religion, but celebrated over? How will they know? How do you know? Somebody, somebody told you. Somebody went after you. Now, I'm not going to do any hows, but I will end with two big helps. And I'll, I'll do both of these pretty quick because I suspect most people in this room that are Christ followers really do long for others to know how good Jesus is, but it can be overwhelming. The thought of how do I do it? So let me give you two really big helps. Um, think again about the baby Jessica story. No one person did it alone. It actually was thousands of different people working over 56 hours in their various gifts and abilities and aptitudes and, and opportunities to, to help see this child come home. And what I would suggest to you is I think one thing that can help us long to see people meet Jesus but not be overwhelmed with it is to understand that evangelism is a team sport. You can think about like baseball. Baseball is probably a great illustration for this. Think about the concept of a bullpen, this place where a bunch of pitchers hang out during a game that may or may not get called into the mound, depending on how it's going. Now, sometimes in baseball, you have a perfect game. You have one pitcher, starts the game, ends the game. You have them pitch in such a way that nobody gets a hit. You might even have them be so good that they almost strike everybody out. Maybe you need like a shortstop every now and then to get a ground ball and throw them out at first. But for the most part, they go from beginning to end. You know what they still need, though? A catcher. Let alone the front office, let alone the training crew, let alone everything else. But, but often what happens in baseball is that they're going to start, depending on how they're doing, you're going to pull in somebody else. You might pull middle relief. You know, you might get to inning four or five. Your arm's starting to get tired. You're trying to manage the workload. You know you got more games coming up. We can't exhaust you, so we bring other people in. How they do, who knows? Even if they're doing great, sometimes what you end up, you get to the ninth inning, you want to close that game, you bring a closer, someone who can just throw really high heat. You got lefties, you got righties, you have good days, you got bad days, but you have a team. That's what you have when you have a church. When you have other Christ followers that have been put on the shepherd's shoulders and brought back to the pen and hearing rejoicing, we have a team. You don't have to do it by yourself. So I actually want to say, like, what would it look like if we as a church just had a heart for the lost? And however that works out, we just said, oh, we got a heart for the lost and we can use each other's gifts and opportunities and talents and abilities to seek people. You know, some of you are really, really good at hospitality. You are great at welcoming people in your homes. Some of you are really good at asking questions. Some of you are amazing at remembering names. Some of you are really good at, at responding to other people's challenging questions. Some of you are wonderful at praying. Some of you are just really like patient. Like you go 30, 40 years in the same friendship. So what if we put all of that together? What if the Lord put all of that together so that those that are far from him right now, maybe next year won't be? Let me give you one more. You got a church more than that. You have God. This parable primarily is about the passionate pursuit of God for lost people. God cares infinitely more about your non-Christian kids, your non-Christian parents, your non-Christian spouse, your non-Christian friends, your non-Christian, uh, or hopefully by God's grace, you're not yet Christian coworkers and colleagues. He cares infinitely more. Listen to Ezekiel 34, 11 through 12 and verse 16. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. 
As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them. From all the places where they have been scattered, on a day of clouds and thick darkness, I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. So let's just ask them. Let's just ask the one who loves people so much he would send his son. Let's ask him. The son who loves lost people so much he would die for them. Let's just ask him. You know, think about Desmond Doss and what he did again. You know, what he did before he rescued anyone. He prayed. Lord, please help me just get one more. It's probably the best action we can always take. It's definitely the first action any of us can take to seek those that are far from God to pray, to ask the one that cares more than any of us to help us find one more. Now, you may have noticed there's, this is our, our baptismal that we use now, horse trough, um, probably appropriate for dumping sheep in. Um, so we've baptized in lots of different places as a church. We've done lakes, we've done the bay, the first baptisms we ever did was in something that looked like a mobile coffin, which had its own irony for sure. Um, but recently, this is what we've baptized. We've baptized a bunch of different people in here. Last week, we got to baptize four people in this tank. It's empty right now. Here's our hope. Here's our prayer, that God would fill it again. So what we're going to do, this is going to be a little bit different. Nobody's going to be put on the spot. If you don't want to participate, you are for sure not forced to. You won't be singled out. But what we're going to do is right now, there's some people that are going to pass out to you one of these one more cards. So on each of these cards, these are um, the design of our baptism certificate. So when someone gets baptized, they get this. We put their name, baptized by, and then the, the date of when they've been baptized. And what we're going to do is hand out two to each person. Everybody gets two of these cards, and we're going to do something with this. So we're going to take what Desmond Doss did, and we're going we're to pray this sort of one more. God, would you just give us one more? Um, what I'm asking you to do is while we're receiving communion, while we're uh, singing songs after we'll do three songs, you don't need to feel rushed during this time. Here's what we're asking is you take two cards, and you write the name of one person on each of the cards. You don't have to put their last names. You leave the rest of it blank. You write the name of, of, of one person that you want to see come to meet Jesus. We want to say that you would have your Lord give me one more. And I would encourage you to pray that, God, who is it? Who is my one more? Who is my one more? And that you would begin to, to, to pray for them. And the hope then is what you'll do is you'll put the name of that person on one card. You'll put the name of them on another card. And then what we're going to do during uh, communion and during singing is here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Is that you take one of those cards and you put it with you. You put it someplace safe that you can take it with you so that you can pray for this person. But I want you to take the other card. And, and I'm asking you to come and take that card and place it into this baptismal. Is this symbolic hope. That God would take that person that is far from him and that he would bring them to saving faith. That we would go from, from prayer and that we would pursue and that one day that person would go in the pool to celebrate that they once were lost but they are now found. Imagine the joy. Just imagine the joy. 
Imagine the joy of the rescuers when baby Jessica came up. Imagine the joy of Desmond Doss when his buddies made it home. Imagine that joy. And, 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 and I know it can be overwhelming, but it can start as simple as this. God, would you just help give one more? Would you help just give one more? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we, if we know you, it is because of sheer grace, pursuing grace, your kindness. You use a lot of different means, but behind all of it was you pursuing. Father, if we know Christ, it's because somebody shared Jesus with us, and probably a lot of different people, and probably a lot of different people praying. God, would you give us Christ's heart for the lost? Not because there are projects, not because we look down, God. The gospel humbles us. We are, we are so utterly humbled that Christ would have to come and die for us that we might live. God, but because they matter infinitely. So, Father, I do pray even right now that you would give that name of who it is that you are inviting each and every one of us to pray for regularly and to begin to pursue we don't know what that looks like. We don't have to know. You know. Today, we just ask you to give us the name. Give us our one more. Help us look forward to the rejoicing that will take place in heaven and before you as those who are far from you come home. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the band's gonna come forward and we are gonna receive uh, a communion as we do every single week as a church, and it really is, this is an incredible opportunity for you to, to put this text into to, to practice. To the re- idea of returning is going from one direction and coming back to God. As we do communion, that's what we're doing. We're saying, God, I've wandered, and I want to come home through your grace. Just like sheep that have wandered, but our iniquity, our sin, our rebellion, it was laid on Christ. And so when you take these elements, that would be my encouragement, that, that the bread and the juice or the bread and the wine... They represent what Christ did so that we could be welcomed back and not our noses rubbed in what we've done, but to be sung over and to hear rejoicing. And I just encourage you, if, if, if you take this, this, this card and you place it in this tub, do so with hope. Do so with prayer. Do so with, with, with anticipated joy of what God could do in the life of that person. Go to the table as you feel led. Place your cards as you feel led.